Hello, I'm Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, this is another episode in the Sheldrake-Vernon Dialogues, and I'm here with Mark Vernon. Hello, Rupert. We talk to each other um, about things we're thinking about, reading about, uh, currently interested in. And our aim in these conversations is, first of all, to have a conversation with each other, because we enjoy bouncing ideas off each other, and also hoping that these will help other people to follow up with uh, with discussions with their friends and thinking about these same questions. The subject I wanted to explore with you today, Mark, is sacred spaces. And I mention this not just in a generic sense, but in a specific sense, because some cathedrals in Britain have now started a program called Sacred Spaces. And I went to one at Lincoln Cathedral last month. They do them monthly at Lincoln. Lincoln's my favourite cathedral. It's a very powerful place. And what happens in their Sacred Space program is that you go there in the evening. This one was at seven o'clock. Um, and it's when the cathedral's closed to tourists and visitors and pilgrims. It's, it's just a space to be... Well, you can be there as a pilgrim. It's actually a very good way to be there as a pilgrim in the sacred space period. And you go into the cathedral, and what happened when we went in, to my surprise, was that there were some tables just inside the cathedral with homely ladies and kindly gentlemen um, serving cups of tea and cakes and biscuits. And... Um, this was very homely, and mm-hmm. uh, this enormously powerful space, uh, one felt, you know, quite at home, and there were other people who were part of it, and people were chatting, and I talked to some people who'd been to previous ones and absolutely loved it, and uh, so it made you feel welcome and part of a little community. Then we went into the Angel Choir, where uh, one of the priests there, a woman priest, gave a short introduction and a blessing on our time. And they had a number of activities in different parts of the cathedral. That evening, clay modelling was one, so they had a table and clay, so if people wanted to express a creative impulse through modelling, they could do that. There was another place where people could sit quietly um, in a side chapel uh, and then uh, with uh, contemplative Bible readings going on. Another one where there was a priest who you could go and talk to if you wanted a personal conversation. So there were a number of different activities. Um, but the main thing was that you could just be there, just be in the space. Uh, I personally wasn't very into clay modelling or uh, uh, any of the other activities. For me, what was uh, so exciting was to be in the cathedral dimly lit in the evening um, with the freedom to go anywhere the whole cathedral was open and one of the things I love doing in cathedrals is lying on the floor and looking up at the vaulting and you get a a sense of complete immersion in the space and I normally don't feel free to do that because I think I I do it but I, I do it surreptitiously because I'm afraid if people see me lying on the floor that either they'll come with a coronary resuscitation device or, <laughs> or some, a Virgil will come and say, can I help you, or something like that. And, I, you know, I don't feel relaxed about it. This time, just to be sure, I asked one of the younger priests there, who there were a few scattered around the cathedral, I said, is it all right to lie on the floor? And he said, yes, do feel free. And so 
I was able to go around the cathedral, all the bits I've always wanted to lie down and immerse myself in the vaulting. I could do that, and, and it was wonderful to do that. Then uh, another thing I like doing is go right up close to the high altar where there's a rail you can kneel down and pray, and pray in that very special place. And Normally, if there were visitors walking around, I'd feel very self-conscious doing that. Um, so I had a most wonderful time in the sacred space in Lincoln Cathedral. And a number of other cathedrals have started doing it. At Southall, Southwell, um, I think they're doing it. And at Canterbury Cathedral, they're doing it. This is new. This has started at the end of 2019. And a few cathedrals are doing it and more are thinking of doing it. Um, and it provides a way of being in the space uh, where the space, the, the sense of presence in that space can act directly and you can do it in a way where you don't feel self-conscious. Another form of sacred space that I wanted to mention again, new, is that in Hampstead Parish Church, which is where I usually go to church, um, they have just started during Lent um, uh, doing Compline on Sunday evenings, night prayers, this lovely 15-minute, very calming um ancient service in plain chant but it's preceded by half an hour of silence and sitting there in the choir stalls of Hampstead Parish Church in the silence before Compline has turned out for me to be an incredibly powerful experience of peaceful presence Um, much more conducive to prayer and meditation than just doing it at home and of course, one can go into most churches, um, many Anglican and almost all Catholic churches are open during the daytime, and one can go into a church anytime. If you're on a weekday and there's hardly anyone around, sacred space can be anytime. And actually, this is something I've done for years. You know, in, in New York City, for example, I now know where all the best churches are. And in, when I feel the need for a bit of refreshment in that bustling city, I go and sit quietly in one of these churches and I I light a candle, say a prayer, and then just sit quietly for a while and allow the space to work on me and and be present in it. Um, And I find this a very powerful practice. And I wondered if if you've um, had similar experiences. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just on the, in terms of being silent in buildings, I actually helped run a silent group at Southwark Cathedral in South London, um, which is another building with its own kind of quality and presence. And um, I think it's really nice for us in the group because we go to Southwark Cathedral for services, say, or we pass it on our bikes when we're cycling around. Um, and it's really fascinating, actually, and and um, to have a completely different experience of the place through being silent. Mm. Um, in it or actually it's quite often around it I should say because we often meet in one of the meeting rooms but there's something still about being in the aura of the building itself um, that um, is very good to share um, and experience just by being silent for half an hour Um, so how you it makes me think I suppose put it another way how you approach a sacred space Mm. um, opens up different aspects of the sacred space. Mm. You know, if you go to a very grand occasion with wonderful music and processions and so on, and that is inspiring perhaps in one way. Mm. Um, But I, maybe like you're hinting and suggesting, I very much like trying to go for the quiet, um, open, undetermined 
um, way of approaching, uh, say, cathedrals or, or, or big churches or little churches, um, you know, very ancient Celtic Saxon churches. I was in um, Repton um, just um, a few days ago before speaking now, and um, uh, the person who was hosting me there said, oh, we must go into Repton Parish Church because there's a Saxon crypt um, underneath the church. And it's very simple, um, but with these very lovely um, Saxon stone columns, um, which are quite rare because uh, stone is quite rare in Saxon buildings, they had just a very simple but nice swirl around them. Um, and, you know, we stood um, in this simple space just slightly beneath the ground now um, and were connected back to people who, you know, have been in that space for centuries um, and uh, just a little gesture like lighting a candle just kind of opens you up to that presence. Um, and yeah, you know that I didn't I didn't then think of it indefinitely, but the rest of my time in Repton was somehow marked by the fact I touched base with something mm. that had been there since the seventh century or before. Mm. Um, so yeah, that 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 sense of uh, how a sacred space can drop you into a kind of grounded presence mm. um, is really powerful and wonderful. Um, I'm glad too, just also um, just to add to the what's happening amongst the English cathedrals, because as well as sacred space um, in 2020, I, my brother is a canon at Bury St Edmunds Cathedral, another um, one of the, well, originally a very ancient um, religious site in this country. And um, so it's a thousand years since the founding of Bury St Edmunds Cathedral. And this year they're involved with... Um, all the pilgrimages and opening up cathedrals and so on in lots of different mm. ways. So just more generally watch out for what your local cathedral might have on because it'll have the sacred space program perhaps, but also other things, particularly for this year, 2020. It's quite a significant year, strangely enough, for lots of cathedrals, in fact. Yes. Well, it is here in Britain has been proclaimed by the Association of English Cathedrals, the year of pilgrimage and of cathedrals. And I know uh, they have a program that all of them are planning to have at least one cathedral night uh, when the cathedrals open at night and sacred space actually is a perfect way of doing it because a normal church service is a torrent of words I mean I have a problem with regular services I mean I go to them and I, I, they're a big part of my life but the, the sheer number of words that you get, there's all the words in the hymns the, the words in the service, the words in the prayers, the words in the sermon, the words in the bible readings it's like total saturation with words. And so this other way of being in churches, in silence, is a wonderful counterbalance to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that I actually, I mean, I, I'm a bit um, quite wary of churches, really, in terms of church services, because I feel that the what they do offer is, apart from the torrent of words, is also, it's quite sort of monocultural. It's essentially you standing before the priest or standing before... Um, you know what's going on in the high place um, to receive blessings to receive communion now there's there's nothing wrong with that per se but it can become um, a bit of a you know a kind of um, too much of a samey kind of diet mm. um, a spiritual diet and so going into these buildings where the space itself um, makes you search for a kind of response mm. um, uh, you know in that tremendous presence and I think that calls for something from within you as much as just leaves you slightly passive receiving from the priest. 
Um, so I'm, you know, I, I've part of the reason why I like going into these buildings now when there's not a service on quite deliberately is because I think that it's a much more interactive experience. Strangely enough, because you'd think that standing and sitting and singing and responding was the more interactive, but at a, at a subtler level, I think uh, going into the the emptiness of a sacred space, which of course is actually very full, brings forth something in you that you, it's hard to find in other ways. Well, I agree. I mean, in my case, it's not either or, it's sort of both and. I mean, I like going to services because that gives a communal dimension. I like being able to sing with other people and pray with other people. So I don't just see it as the priest, I see it as a collective activity. Um, And then, you know, meeting people after the service, it's a way of building community, and I think it actually works. And in many parts of Britain, at least, it's almost the only thing left in the centre of each village or town that does have a sense of community. So I think there's a great value in it. Um, but being in the space in silence is is much more contemplative, meditative, and, um, uh, and, and actually spiritually connecting, I think. Um, but as I say, I, I think it, it doesn't have to be either or. On this particular evenings with Compline, preceded by silence... Oh, is a quite wonderful way of combining them actually I, I, I'd not encountered it before they started doing it in Hampstead Parish Church this Lent um, and the silence as I say was extraordinarily profound for me and for others who've been there and then the Compline where the, there's plain chant where you're singing together again it brings you together in this, in this ancient liturgy Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed to me a perfect combination, actually. Yeah, and the, and the wonderful thing about Compline is that it is a kind of liminal service. You know, it's it's at the end of the day. Um, a lot of the, the psalms and the language which is used is very much inviting you to stand on the edge of light and dark, um, you know, forces that you see, forces that you don't see. Mm. And so it's a very evocative service, I think, for taking you to um, that sense of, um, well, sacredness, but also perhaps subliminal, you know, the sublime as well. If the sublime is something which really draws you, but also can be, um, you know, quite overwhelming even at times and, and maybe a bit daunting, but nonetheless something that you want to move towards and try and relate to more, mm. um, then, you know, Compline is a perfect... And, of course, the time of day that it tends to occur at, which is in the evening, um, you know, when you feel differently again a different kind of consciousness can arise in the evening that's much harder to do in the middle of the day yes um, yeah so it brings a lot of factors together i wonder also about um uh sort of sacred maybe um, creating sacred spaces um in other places as well so you know if a cathedral or a church is a sacred place um that has um that's marked by its longevity and it's been made sacred um, by many many people over over a long period of time and um, what about um, the, the sense of creating a sacred space, um, maybe in your home? Um, so, for example, you know, we have um, a kind of home altar, I suppose you could call it. It's basically just a table. Um, but we have a few icons, a few stones, um, a few kind of artefacts um, that we've gathered over the years. Uh, maybe, a, you know, a picture or two that um, is particularly powerful. So, like, one of the pictures we have is the Piero della Francesca picture of the resurrection, which I find enormously powerful. Um, and it's I really like it. It's in the sort of almost in the centre of our home, literally. Um, and you pass it all the time, therefore. Um, but it just, for me, provides a bit of a sort of vertical element in the home 
alongside all the horizontal things which you do in the home, like cooking and sitting and watching mm. telly and sleeping and so on. And I, I like the sense that there's a sacred... It doesn't make the whole home a sacred place, but it draws down a kind of sacred element into the home, I think. Um, so that maybe that's another sense of uh, how to bring about a, a sacred um, aspect to life and by, you know, having some sort of... It, it's sacred, I think, because it's set aside for those objects. You know, they're intentionally put there, they're deliberately put there. We might have gone on a pilgrimage and picked up a stone or bought an icon or something like that. And then it helps you actually a bit more practically it just helps you live with these objects and these images so you pass them and you see it again and it speaks to you a bit more and um, it's quite a yes. nice way of um integrating them yeah into mm. into life well i think that's actually very traditional i mean in in, <clears throat> in most catholic and orthodox homes you'd have an icon or a cross which would be um, like the center of a sacred corner or space I myself have in, in my study a wall where I have, uh, you know, icons and um, it's like my sacred space where I pray. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the, when I lived in India, I was impressed by the way that in, in the Indian culture so much is, is, is sacralized. You know, the fire in the heart of each home on which cooking happens, and traditionally an open fire, is a sacred space. The first time I went to India in 1968, I was staying in a village with a remote village in the Himalayan foothills with a herbal doctor, a Brahmin family, and with a friend of mine who was an anthropologist who was living with them. And there was the fire, the woman was cooking on it, and I, I'd got a piece of rubbish and I was just about to throw it on the fire, you know, to get rid of some scraps of paper in my pocket and and my friend said don't no just don't do that you know this fire is not just for burning rubbish it's a sacred it's the hearth it's the hearth is the center of the home and it's the sacred fire agni the fire principle is sacred in hinduism the fire is sacred and it's where you cook the food and and they, they make sort of offerings to it it's it's um and then, of course, Indian villages have sacred trees and there's holy animals, holy cows and things. So, uh, there, there's so many things there. Which, And, of course, in traditional Chinese and Japanese homes, they have ancestor shrines. So this, the, the sense of these spaces... Uh, some people nowadays have meditation rooms. Um, yes, so I think having something in one's home as well, or garden. Yeah, I mean, actually, just it's in the... Judeo-Christian tradition too, but often a bit lost now in the oldest bits of the Bible, um, where, for example, you know the the gods of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, are often uh, associated with the hearth, um, setting up the hearth. When you know when Abraham um, uh, settles underneath the oaks of Mamre, they build a hearth, hmm. um, and the sense of connecting either with an- ancestral. Um, gods or the gods of the place. Yes. Um, so it's a very, very ancient idea that fire, which of course you know flickers and is associated with spirit and rising and and warmth and light and all these things, um, it's a very powerful symbol, um, as well as something very practical. Well, indeed, I suppose that the the lighting candles on altars of churches or even in the middle of a dinner table is a, a living flame. Is is a kind of symbolic version of that where it's not even symbolic i mean it is an actual living flame Mm -hmm. yeah and and i mean that reminds me of another um sort of sacred space reference um which is 
um, used by the Temenos Academy, who are this group that put on talks and reading groups and so on um, here in London. And Temenos you know, is the Greek for sacred place. The so Temenos mm. was the Holy of Holies mm. in the temple. Um, and they mark um, uh, uh, the, the sort of slightly different quality of consciousness that they invite you to bring to a talk or to a reading group by lighting a candle at the beginning of every meeting. Um, it's a very simple thing, and it's, you know, it's not really pious, but it does just have that moment where, again, you just you remember that you're here for something that's sacred in the sense that you know, it might speak to you, it might change you, it might open up a different aspect of life to you. Mm. Um, and they, they, you know, deliberately want to invoke that possibility. Mm. Um, and it's a very nice practice. You, you know, you can even do it at home. And um, if you're reading um, even a poem, it doesn't even have to be particularly sacred, but um, certainly if you're reading, um, I mean, I'm reading Dante's Divine Comedy at the moment. Um, again, I've read it quite a few times, and it's very nice just to kind of sit and... Um, I you know put something on the table beside me, for example, just to say you know I want to read this, and I'm going to do all the intellectual work around it, but I want it to speak to me. I want to be in a slightly different relationship to it. Mm. So making it almost like a sacred space around the zone you're reading, mm. um, it, it can have quite a powerful effect. Yes, and indeed we're we're lucky uh, in Britain, at any rate, that um, very soon Nick Mayhew Smith's book. Britain's Pilgrim Places is going to be published because there there's hundreds of sacred places all around the country not just ancient churches and cathedrals but also holy wells um, you know springs um, river sources um, ancient trees Um, and what his book does is reminds us just how many of these special places there are and um, his the first edition of his book was called, as you know, Britain's Holiest Places. This is called Britain's Pilgrim Places because the new dimension is adding in pilgrimage, uh, walking there uh, to these places. And so uh, his, I, I was looking through the proofs of his book a few days ago and I was just amazed. I, I just wanted to go to these places. It just made me want to go. One of them... Um, I thought, well, I, I want to start right now. And there was one in London that caught my eye. It's the St. Ethelreda's Church in Ely Place, which is this medieval chapel of the Bishop of Ely, which is now a Roman Catholic church, one of the few medieval Catholic churches in London. And I went there, and I found it down this kind of secret little side street, which I would never otherwise have noticed. And then you have to go along a corridor to, and you go up and some stairs and there's this marvellous place with a wonderful feeling of peace and calm which I would never have known about except for the Nick Mayhew Smith's uh, book. Yeah, I mean, I, I can hardly praise that. The, the, the initial book, Britain's Holiest Place, is highly enough so I'm really looking forward to the, the new version as well um, because, you know, it, it, it's so oh, it's pr- quite practical, doesn't it? It tells you how to find the, the street you'd never otherwise go down and yes. follow the corridor and so on. Um, but, um, you know, these incredible treasures that... And it might be a very simple well. Um, I, mean, I remember once, one place we visited, you had to get permission um, to go on the land, but that just meant you had to go to a shop on the high street and get permission. Um, and But that, that extra bit of effort to find the place, mm. um, which otherwise was off the beaten track... Um, you know, it was just—it's just just tremendous. I can't wait to see that new book. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, here we have a, 
wonderful treasures uh, all around us and potential experience of being in them uh, in a way that's totally eco-friendly as well. You ideally walk to them if you, when you're near them and um, it's not emitting any sort of carbon fumes just to be there except perhaps the minimal amount from a candle you might light. Yeah, I mean, it's eco-friendly in the practical sense, but I think it's also, it's it, in some way, it's about reminding ourselves that um, that the richest experience in life aren't things that we consume, but the richest experiences are things we contemplate um, or presences that we feel. Um, and maybe that's another aspect of, of sacred space, which, um, you know, is finding a new importance and significance even these days. Well, thank goodness. Well, thanks, Mark. Cheers for now.